Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Writers Studio brings a nationally recognized writer to the Denver cultural community for a weekend of signature events. An onstage reading and interview offers a peek inside the writer's life, followed by a writerly-themed benefit dinner with the author. A craft seminar the next morning is a very special opportunity to learn more about the writer's process from a master. The Fall 2013 Writer's Studio guest was Jennifer Egan. Egan is the author of The Invisible Circus, Look at Me, Emerald City and Other Stories, and most recently, The Keep, a national bestseller. Her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, published in 2010, received the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. I don't know what you guys usually do on Thursday nights, but I'm really glad you're doing this here tonight. Um, Picking up where we left off last year with Juno Diaz, uh, there was no event when I picked up uh, Miss Jennifer Egan from the airport. I didn't almost kill her, which um, already things are going better. I want to give you a a brief sense of what's going on tonight, because I know it can be stressful to be sitting there and not know what's going on. And I I was looking through the program, and there was no mention of what's going to happen. So (laughs) we're going to start with me introducing Jennifer Egan. And one of the first shocking things of the writer's studio is going to be how concise and on point I'm going to be, because I wrote it down. And those of you who don't know me know this is a really good thing that, that or those of you who do know me know it's a good thing I wrote it down. Um, and then for about 15 minutes, she's going to come out and read, which is excellent, and she's going to blow your minds, all of our minds. Um, and then for about 40 minutes, we will retire to our little faux living room. And it's straight out of a Jennifer Egan novel. It's like an audience in our living room. And I'm going to channel you guys and your fierce curiosities about Jennifer Egan and how she's so awesome. Um, And then after that, if I don't channel everybody's questions, we will um, open it up to you for questions for about 20 minutes. And then she'll be signing in the lobby. So is that good with everybody? Great. Okay, so um, that's the real agenda, but the hidden agenda is I really don't want to creep Jennifer Egan out about how amazing a writer I think she is and um, how I would kind of like to be a tourist in her capacious, multi-layered brain, which I kind of have been because I've been reading her work for a couple years, and you guys could all do that as well. So I don't want to creep her out. That being said, I think she's a genius and a hero of humanity. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read. Now I'm going to read. I'm going on script. So it sounds a little bit ludicrous to summarize all of Jennifer Egan's work and its boldest, most plot-driven outlines, which seems to be the fashion... I'm going to do it in a few minutes anyway, but 
I'm, I'm going to act like I won't do it. Um, so let me just say that each of her fictions in its own way makes you feel as a reader that you might be going slightly insane. Time is both collapsible and moves backwards, forwards, vertically, horizontally, and diagonally. People shapeshift and reveal other selves, sometimes attention-seeking, fame-grabbing, but ultimately desiring to escape their innate and always encroaching invisibility. In our era of both ceaseless connectivity and rampant, rampant disconnection, she keeps the reader on that gothic edge of knowing what is real, what is not real. Is there an essential truth, or is reality always pliable, a manipulation of image, identity, and time? What do we ever truly know about the world and each other, and maybe even ourselves, anyway? In her novel, The Keep, the protagonist, Danny, describes a kind of natural high, quote, When he first came to New York, he and his friends tried to find a name for the relationship they craved between themselves and the universe. But the English language came up short. Perspective, vision, knowledge, wisdom, those words were all too heavy or too light. So Danny and his friends made up a name, Alto. True Alto worked two ways. You saw, but you also could be seen. You knew and were known. Two-way recognition. Let's say when you're immersed in Egan's fiction, whether you're reading about castle renovations, here I'm going to do the thing I said is annoying, uh, castle renovations, the cataclysmic changes in the world of music, a young woman retracing her late sister's step through Europe, or a model negotiating a new life with a new face. Whatever it is, you feel while you're reading true alto a recognition of yourself among her wandering characters, each of them on the hunt for their own particular kind of recognition. You come out on the other side like they do, emotionally stirred, a little bit shocked, and forever transformed. That's why I've been drawn to her work over the years and why every time a new Egan book comes out, I feel confident that it will be bold and bristling and unlike anything I've read before. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Jennifer Egan. Thank you so much, Andrea. Nothing like setting the bar low. Um, I, I thank you for that lavish introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's great to be here. One thing that I value so much in my writing life is community. I've had a writing group for... 20-something years now, I wrote one book in a vacuum, and it's the one you will never read. <laughs> I'm not going to make that mistake again. So um, it's, really, it's great to be here, to be part of the Lighthouse Endeavor. And I'm going to read just the beginning of A Visit from the Goon Squad, but before I do, I thought it would just be worth giving you a brief anecdote about how this came to be the beginning of this book. I started this not even intending to write a book. I was sort of avoiding a different book. And in the middle of it's amazing what you can get, get done while procrastinating. Um, in the midst of avoiding that book, I had dinner with my mother, who was visiting New York in a hotel. And in the restroom, I was washing my hands, and I looked down, and I saw a wallet lying in a woman's bag right under the sink. And I immediately felt anxious on behalf of the wallet owner, because I have been robbed so many times and ways that I am clearly a gigantic sucker, and everyone knows it except for me. And... 
I, one particular theft of the many um, in, in various countries, um, including New York, um, of the many, the one that has really stayed in my mind was one that actually did happen in New York. My wallet was stolen and I was extremely upset because I was flying later in the day. That was before the days of needing ID, but I did need money to get to the airport and I needed ID to get money and I had neither. So in the midst of spinning my wheels about this and, and sort of freaking out, my phone rang, and lo and behold, it was the Citibank Fraud Recovery Program. A lovely woman. Um, I immediately began to weep and um, <laughs> you know, express my misery to her and my worries. She said, don't worry. Everyone feels like that. It's no problem. Let's just go through what you had in your wallet, and we'll get you back on your feet in no time. So we discussed my credit card, and then it was time to get a new cash card, which I very much needed, and I picked a new PIN number, and somehow in the midst of that, I also mentioned what my old PIN number was, and then the conversation wound down very quickly because I was talking to the thief. Yeah. She did a brilliant job of impersonating a Citibank employee, to the, even to the point of having a typing on a keyboard in the background. So now, armed with, of course, my old PIN number, she raced to the cash machine and actually overdrew my checking account. And, of course, I was upset before that, so you can imagine <laughs> the kind of state I reached when all of this came to light. Um, anyway, it was, it was one of those disasters that was not a real disaster, and it, it all worked out, and I actually got the money back from the bank. Um, but I was left with this curiosity about the woman herself, because we had spoken on the phone and we'd had this kind of emotional, I thought, communication. I, I think the emotion on her side was pure glee and anticipation of riches. Um, but I found myself wondering what it had been like from her point of view, specifically. And, and even thought about trying to write about her, couldn't really find a way to do it. And the whole thing became a funny story to tell at parties, and then I basically forgot about it. But I think in the moment of seeing that wallet, I thought, oh, you know, someone's going to take that wallet. And then I thought, well, I'm the only one here. And I think I reconnected in that moment with that curiosity about the point of view of the thief. So needless to say, I did not take the wallet, but I did decide the next morning that instead of working on this book I was trying so hard to avoid, just for fun, I would write a short story starting from that moment when one woman sees another woman's wallet. And out of that, um, over time, grew this book, A Visit from the Goon Squad. So I'm just going to read the beginning of the beginning, Found Objects. It began the usual way in the bathroom of the Lassimo Hotel. Sasha was adjusting her yellow eyeshadow in the mirror when she noticed a bag on the floor beside the sink that must have belonged to the woman whose peeing she could faintly hear through the vault-like door of a toilet stall. Inside the rim of the bag, barely visible, was a wallet made of pale green leather. It was easy for Sasha to recognize, looking back, that the peeing woman's blind trust had provoked her. We live in a city where people will steal the hair off your head if you give them half a chance, but you leave your stuff lying in plain sight and expect it to be waiting for you when you come back? It made her want to teach the woman a lesson. 
But this wish only camouflaged the deeper feeling Sasha always had, that fat, tender wallet offering itself to her hand. It seemed so dull, so life as usual, to just leave it there, rather than seize the moment, accept the challenge, take the leap, fly the coop, throw caution to the wind, live dangerously. I get it, cause, her therapist said, and take the fucking thing. (laughs) You mean steal it. He was trying to get Sasha to use that word, which was harder to avoid in the case of a wallet than with a lot of the things she'd lifted over the past year when her condition, as Kaz referred to it, had begun to accelerate. Five sets of keys, 14 pairs of sunglasses, a child's striped scarf, binoculars, a cheese grater, a pocket knife, 28 bars of soap, and 85 pens ranging from cheap ballpoints she'd used to sign debit card slips to the aubergine Visconti that cost $260 online, which she'd lifted from her former boss's lawyer during a contracts meeting. Sasha no longer took anything from stores. Their cold, inert goods didn't tempt her, only from people. Okay, she said, steal it. Sasha and Kaz had dubbed that feeling she got the personal challenge, as in taking the wallet was a way for Sasha to assert her toughness, her individuality. What they needed to do was switch things around in her head so that the challenge became not taking the wallet, but leaving it. That would be the cure, although Kaz never used words like cure. He wore funky sweaters and let her call him Kaz, but he was old-school inscrutable, to the point where Sasha couldn't tell if he was gay or straight, if he'd written famous books, or if, as she sometimes suspected, he was one of those escaped cons who impersonate surgeons and wind up leaving their operating tools inside people's skulls. (laughs) Of course, these questions could have been resolved on Google in less than a minute, but they were useful questions, according to Kaz, and so far, Sasha had resisted. The couch where she lay in his office was blue leather and very soft. Kaz liked the couch, he told her, because it relieved them both of the burden of eye contact. You don't like eye contact? Sasha had asked. It seemed like a weird thing for a therapist to admit. (laughs) I find it tiring, he'd said. This way we can both look where we want. Where will you look? He smiled. You can see my options. Where do you usually look when people are on the couch? Around the room, Kaz said, at the ceiling, into space. Do you ever sleep? No. Sasha usually looked at the window, which faced the street, and tonight, as she continued her story, was rippled with rain. She'd glimpsed the wallet, tender and overripe as a peach. She'd plucked it from the woman's bag and slipped it into her own small handbag, which she'd zipped shut before the sound of peeing had stopped. She flicked open the bathroom door and floated back through the lobby to the bar. She and the wallet's owner had never seen each other. Pre-wallet, Sasha had been in the grip of a dire evening. Lame date, yet another, brooding behind dark bangs, sometimes glancing at the flat screen TV where a Jets game seemed to interest him more than Sasha's admittedly overhandled tales of Benny Salazar, her old boss, who was famous for founding the Sow's Ear record label and who also, Sasha happened to know, sprinkled gold flakes into his coffee as an aphrodisiac, she suspected, and sprayed pesticide in his armpits. 
Post-wallet, however, the scene tingled with mirthful possibility. Sasha felt the waiters eyeing her as she sidled back to the table, holding her handbag with its secret weight. She sat down and took a sip of her melon madness martini and cocked her head at Alex. She smiled her yes-no smile. Hello, she said. The yes-no smile was amazingly effective. (laughs) You're happy, Alex said. I'm always happy, Sasha said. Sometimes I just forget. Alex had paid the bill while she was in the bathroom, clear proof that he was on the verge of of aborting their date. Now he studied her. You feel like going somewhere else? They stood. Alex wore black cords and a white button-up shirt. He was a legal secretary. On email, he'd been fanciful, almost goofy, but in person he seemed simultaneously anxious and bored. She could tell that he was in excellent shape, not from going to the gym, but from being young enough that his body was still imprinted with whatever sports he'd played in high school and college. Sasha, who was 35, had passed that point. Still, not even Kaz knew her real age. The closest anyone had come to guessing it was 31, and most put her in her 20s. She worked out daily and avoided the sun. Her online profiles all listed her as 28. As she followed Alex from the bar, she couldn't resist unzipping her purse and touching the fat green wallet just for a second for the contraction it made her feel around her heart. You're aware of how the theft makes you feel, Kaz said, to the point where you remind yourself of it to improve your mood, but do you think about how it makes the other person feel? Sasha tipped back her head to look at him. She made a point of doing this now and then, just to remind Kaz that she wasn't an idiot. She knew the question had a right answer. She and Kaz were collaborators, writing a story whose end had already been determined. She would get well. She would stop stealing from people and start caring again about the things that had once guided her. Music, the network of friends she'd made when she first came to New York, a set of goals she'd scrawled on a big sheet of newsprint and taped to the walls of her early apartments. Find a band to manage. Understand the news. Study Japanese. Practice the harp. I don't think about the people, Sasha said. But it isn't that you lack empathy, Kaz said. We know that because of the plumber. Sasha sighed. She told Kaz the plumber story about a month ago, and he'd found a way to bring it up at almost every session since. The plumber was an old man sent by Sasha's landlord to investigate a leak in the apartment below hers. He'd appeared in Sasha's doorway, tufts of gray on his head, and within a minute, boom, he'd hit the floor and crawled under her bathtub like an animal fumbling its way into a familiar hole. The fingers he'd groped toward the bolts behind the tub were grimed to cigar stubs, and reaching made his sweatshirt hike up, exposing a soft white back. Sasha turned away, stricken by the old man's abasement, anxious to leave for her temp job, except that the plumber was talking to her, asking about the length and frequency of her showers. I never use it, she told him curtly. I shower at the gym. He nodded without acknowledging her rudeness, apparently used to it. Sasha's nose began to prickle. She shut her eyes and pushed hard on both temples. Opening her eyes, she saw the plumber's tool belt lying on the floor at her feet. It had a beautiful screwdriver in it. 
the orange translucent handle gleaming like a lollipop in its worn leather loop, the silvery shaft sculpted, sparkling. Sasha felt herself contract around the object in a single yawn of appetite. She needed to hold the screwdriver just for a minute. She bent her knees and plucked it noiselessly from the belt. Not a bangle jangled. She, her bony hands were spastic at most things, but she was good at this, made for it, she often thought, in the first drifty moments after lifting something. And once the screwdriver was in her hand, she felt instant relief from the pain of having an old, soft-backed man snuffling under her tub, and then something more than relief— a blessed indifference, as if the very idea of feeling pain over such a thing were baffling. And what about after he'd gone? Kaz had asked when Sasha told him the story. How did the screwdriver look to you then? There was a pause. Normal, she said. Really? Not special anymore? Like any screwdriver. Sasha had heard Kaz shift behind her and felt something happen in the room. The screwdriver, which she'd placed on the table, recently supplemented with a second table, where she kept the things she'd lifted and which she'd barely looked at since, seemed to hang in the air of Kaz's office. It floated between them, a symbol. And how did you feel, Kaz asked quietly, about having taken it from the plumber you pitied? How did she feel? How did she feel? There was a right answer, of course. At times, Sasha had to fight the urge to lie simply as a way of depriving Kaz of it. Bad, she said. Okay, I felt bad. Shit, I'm bankrupting myself to pay for you. Obviously, I get that this isn't a great way to live. More than once, Kaz had tried to connect the plumber to Sasha's father, who had disappeared when she was six. She was careful not to indulge this line of thinking. I don't remember him, she told Kaz. I have nothing to say. She did this for Kaz's protection and her own. They were writing a story of redemption, of fresh beginnings and second chances, but in that direction lay only sorrow. Sasha and Alex crossed the lobby of the Lassimo Hotel in the direction of the street. Sasha hugged her purse to her shoulder, the warm ball of wallet snuggled in her armpit. As they passed the angular butted branches by the big glass door to the street, a woman zigzagged into their path. Wait, she said, you haven't seen, I'm desperate. Sasha felt a twang of terror. It was the woman whose wallet she'd taken. She knew this instantly, although the person before her had nothing in common with the blithe, raven-haired wallet owner she'd pictured. This woman had vulnerable brown eyes and flat, pointy shoes that clicked too loudly on the marble floor. There was plenty of gray in her frizzy brown hair. Sasha took Alex's arm, trying to steer him through the doors. She felt his pulse of surprise at her touch, but he stayed put. Have we seen what? he said. Someone stole my wallet. My ID is gone and I have to catch a plane tomorrow morning. I'm just desperate. She stared beseechingly at both of them. It was the sort of frank need that New Yorkers quickly learn how to hide, and Sasha recoiled. It had never occurred to her that the woman was from out of town. Have you called the police? Alex asked. The concierge said he would call, but I'm also wondering, could it have fallen out somewhere? She looked helplessly at the marble floor around their feet. Sasha relaxed slightly. This woman was the type who annoyed people without meaning to. 
Apology shadowed her movements even now as she followed Alex to the concierge desk. Sasha trailed behind. Is someone helping this person? She heard Alex ask. The concierge was young and spiky-haired. We've called the police, he said defensively. Alex turned to the woman. Where did this happen? In the ladies' room, I think. Who else was there? No one. It was empty? There might have been someone, but I didn't see her. Alex swung around to Sasha. You were just in the bathroom, he said. (laughs) Did you see anyone? No, she managed to say. She had Xanax in her purse, but she couldn't open her purse. Even with it zipped, she feared that the wallet would blurt into view in some way that she couldn't control, unleashing a cascade of horrors, arrest, shame, poverty, death. Alex turned to the concierge. How come I'm asking these questions instead of you, he said. Someone just got robbed in your hotel. Don't you have, like, security? The words robbed and security managed to pierce the soothing backbeat that pumped through not just the Lassimo, but every hotel like it in New York City. There was a mild ripple of interest from the lobby. I've called, the, I've called security, the concierge said, adjusting his neck. I'll call them again. Sasha glanced at Alex. He was angry, and the anger made him recognizable in a way that an hour of aimless chatter, mostly hers, it was true, had not. He was new to New York. He came from someplace smaller. He had a thing or two to prove about how people should treat one another. Two security guys showed up, the same on TV and in life, Beefy guys whose scrupulous politeness was somehow linked to their willingness to crack skulls. They dispersed to search the bar. Sasha wished feverishly that she'd left the wallet there, as if this were an impulse she'd barely resisted. I'll check the bathroom, she told Alex and forced herself to walk slowly around the elevator bank. The bathroom was empty. Sasha opened her purse, took out the wallet, unearthed her vial of Xanax, and popped one between her teeth. They worked faster if you chewed them. As the caustic taste flooded her mouth, she scanned the room, trying to decide where to ditch the wallet. In the stall? Under the sink? The decision paralyzed her. She had to do this right to emerge unscathed, and if she could, if she did, she had a frenzied sense of making a promise to cause. The bathroom door opened, and the woman walked in. Her frantic eyes met Sasha's in the bathroom mirror, narrow, green, equally frantic. There was a pause, during which Sasha felt that she was being confronted. The woman knew, had known all along. Sasha handed her the wallet. She saw from the woman's stunned expression that she was wrong. I'm sorry, Sasha said quickly. It's a problem I have. (laughs) The woman opened the wallet. Her physical relief at having it back coursed through Sasha in a warm rush, as if their bodies had fused. Everything's there, I swear, she said. I didn't even open it. It's this problem I have, but I'm getting help. I just, please don't tell. I'm hanging on by a thread. The woman glanced up, her soft brown eyes moving over Sasha's face. What did she see? Sasha wished that she could turn and peer in the mirror again, as if, some, as if something about herself might at last be revealed, some lost thing. But she didn't turn. She held still and let the woman look. It struck her that the woman was close to her own age, her real age. She probably had children at home. 
Okay, the woman said, looking down. It's between us. Thank you, Sasha said. Thank you, thank you. Relief and the first gentle waves of Xanax made her feel faint, and she leaned against the wall. She sensed the woman's eagerness to get away. She longed to slide to the floor. There was a rap on the door, a man's voice. Any luck? I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, I was struck listening to that by how many of the characters in all of your books are deceivers of, in one form or another. And in fact, Charlotte in Look at Me has a special talent where she can see people's, you know, their dark side, their hidden self. Um, is that something that has fascinated you or that you feel is true of human nature in general? That we're deceivers? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to the extent that there's a gap between who we are to ourselves and who we are to each other, yes. Um, the, thi- the, inter- the thing that you mentioned about Charlotte, this woman um, has this idea that she can see what she calls shadow selves that are sort of the true, someone's true nature, I guess the, the part of themselves that they're concealing from other people. But the thing is that she's actually wrong quite a bit. <laughs> so what, what we come to realize is that, in fact, this is something that she gets something out of believing she can do. It's a way of organizing reality for herself. But it's not like she's some kind of seer. I mean, she actually makes tons of mistakes and is hugely deceived in the course of the book. So it's almost like she thinks this vision inoculates her against deception, but in fact it makes her much more prone to it because she, does, she never questions her own impressions. That's right, and um, she, she has been deceptive herself, um, and we, we learn that as the novel goes on. One of the things that struck me with Sasha that was similar to uh, Charlotte is one thing they're deceptive about is their age. And they're both in their own way trying to stop time in some fashion. That's so true. I actually hadn't, those are probably my only two age deceiving um, characters. Well, that, Charlotte, who has been a fashion model, has some very good reasons to be concealing her age. And she actually has been selling a, celebrating her birthday every other year for quite a while. So she said there's a gigantic gap between her, her alleged age and her real age. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm... And, and the other thing about Charlotte, the model, is that she has a whole another sort of mental construct that makes her deceptions okay because she has this idea that if you mean what you say as you say it, then you're not really lying, even if it turns out not to be true in the larger scheme of things. <laughs> Think of what this, I mean, welcome to the world of politics. Um, so, you know, so she, she basically says all kinds, I mean, she, there, she in no way represents her real thoughts or feelings to anyone else and feels no obligation to do it. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I would call, I, I'm what my mother calls terminally honest, um, which she, by which she means that at like 23, filling out a form for insurance, I was honest about, oh, I get headaches, and yes, I've had scoliosis. So this person in perfect health was denied insurance. And my mother said, don't you understand? You're supposed to just say you're fine. Wait, why are you telling them all this? So I guess because my impulse is usually to be fairly honest, I love writing about deceivers. (laughs) They're so much fun. 
And one of the things you introduce in your work that is relevant to this, I think, is technology and how much easier it becomes to manipulate the truth um, given online personas. And I was thinking of Sasha and how she lists her age. And, and, and Charlotte, to a certain degree, regrets that, that all of her uh, photographs are so staged and perfected and airbrushed because then, you know, she has a hard time reconstructing her face and what she really looked like. And I was thinking about that. Is this something that's gotten more complicated and also more available to people, this uh, deception? and It's such a fascinating thing. I think my I, um, I write for the New York Times and I occasionally do cover stories for them. And I did one for them in the year 2000 that was huge, it was sort of revolutionized my thoughts about the internet, which I used by then, but not in any kind of really deeply engaged way. And this was a story about the, uh, the secret out online lives of closeted gay teens. And these were kids all over America who lived in places where it was not at all possible for them to admit that they were gay. Um, some of them actually believed they would be killed if they would admit that or rejected by their families. So they, um, their, their home lives they thought of as their fake lives because they were not their real selves in, in their home environment. And their online lives where they were, you know, had communities and friends and they were instant messaging at night and even had relationships in which they never actually even spoke to the person, much less saw them. Um, They saw those as their real lives because they were their real selves. But of course, there was a huge amount of deception in this online world and, you know, ranging from the, just the, the kind of awfulness you would expect of adults posing as, as teens and having, you know, relationships with these other teens, again, not meeting, but still, um, to one really freaky case where there was a guy who had a whole community of friends that he'd found and he was so excited because he'd never really had this at home. And, um, and so they would be wildly emailing and instant messaging all night while doing homework and stuff. And in the course of this, he, he began to notice that there were certain verbal tics that were common to several members of, of the group. And when he questioned them, they began to kind of disappear. And so finally he contacted AOL. This, this was pre-social networking. So these people would meet through chat rooms and bulletin boards. And a lot of the bulletin boards were on AOL. He got AOL involved and, it, and they discovered that this so-called group of friends was actually one adult individual, you know, living in Maine or something and just completely messing with this kid's head. So there was this tremendous paradox. This, this so-called real world was, you know, was, was not real in lots of ways. And it got me thinking about whether the binary real unreal really means anything anymore. Um, you know, what, what that means in a, at a time when so much of our experience is virtual Virtual experience is still real experience, but it's not real in the way we used to mean real. Um, and what, what does all that add up to? And really, those questions, I think, fueled my novel The Keep probably more than any other. All of that was after Look at Me. So, that, so Look at Me was written before that. But I think I, that it really a kind of um, it was a big moment in the shaping of some of the questions I've asked about online experience. Well, for those of you who haven't read The Keep, one of the first kind of arresting images is this guy, Danny, from from New York, um, trudging through. He doesn't even know where, 
somewhere between Germany and the Czech Republic. I don't even know, Austria. Neither do I. Um, <laughs> and he's trudging through with this satellite dish that he wants to take to this kind of Baroque castle that he's going to be renovating. And he's trudging around with it, and, and it ultimately lands in the lake, right? So he, I mean, his, his virtual world and all of his connections are lost almost immediately. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience once, you know, now in our contemporary society, but I remember at McDowell not being able to connect and just sitting there and watching the circle go. You know, I would, I would want to look something up. You know, just really quickly. I'm so used to being able to do it. Um, and, and you've kind of reenacted that in the book. Well, the thing I was particularly, I mean, I wanted to write a gothic story. And I was really interested in, in just being in that sort of gothic realm, which is not a real place. It's sort of a literary place. Or a, I mean, I watched Dark Shadows when my mother wasn't around after school. So I'm dating myself. Um, but all of that is gothic. It's like, it's sort of cheesy and fake, but also kind of exciting and, and strange. Um, and so I wanted to, to write about the gothic world, and I had a sense that I wanted technology to be part of it, but I only realized, and, and the obvious way to do that was to have someone who's very connected be cut off in this gothic realm, because most gothic stories involve that sense of being cut off. If you think of The Turn of the Screw, which is an amazing, probably the best single gothic work I've read, um, you know, the, a, a critical part of the beginning of the story is that a sort of innocent enters into uh, a, a world, uh, usually with some big dwelling, either a castle or a house, and is cut off from his or her world. So I was interested in watching someone who's addicted to technology be deprived of that technology, and that was kind of fun. But what, what I really realized the book was about as I went on was, was the fact that, in a way, the Gothic world, which is always imbued with this sense of um, the possibility of supernatural experience, in other words, disembodied communication, bears more than a passing resemblance to the way we live now in a constant state of anticipation of disembodied communication. Um, so there was a, an odd echo there that I hadn't been looking for, and that was kind of the fun surprise of writing that book for me. That's interesting, and the, the disembodiment is something I noticed kind of throughout. There were times when characters, they either had like a doppelganger, a literal other self, or they had a divided self. And I was thinking, we were talking the other day um, in one of my classes about out of body, um, where the character kind of lifts up and is able to see himself. And, and he is living um, a life where a major part of him is hidden from everybody and himself. Um, but also in Black Box, the new newer story that was in the New Yorker, um, there's a character. Did you guys read that? It was all tweeted, and um, but you can also just read it. So that's why I read it because I, I am not. I don't know how to do Twitter, but where she, one of the new kind of forms of patriotism in the future is to stop being such a narcissist and actually go do something for, for your country but get no personal recognition for it. And she does this thing where she has to go sleep with um, these dictators, these, these brutal guys who are trying to hurt America. And um, 
you know, spy on them and get their secrets. And she has this whole dissociative technique where she leaves her body when, when that's happening. And it just made me remember the other times in your stories where characters kind of leave their bodies. Is this, is this a thing? <laughs> it is now. Um, <laughs> I think it is, although I, I wouldn't have put it exact. I mean, certainly doppelgangers I've always been really interested in. I mean, my first novel is about a girl who, whose older sister, whom she very strongly resembles, has committed suicide at the um, end of the 1960s. And this younger, much younger sister grows up kind of filled with the sense that her vanished sister is a kind of better version of herself. And the physical similarity adds to that idea, and it's the classic way that we often kind of imbue people who have died early, um, especially suicides, with a sort of mystique. Um, And she's just, she feels that she is literally nothing, that she's a kind of, that she's an echo of something else that's gone. Um, and, and, And that book is really, in a way, about the sort of, the law, the, the way that the 60s, um, the, the countercultural experience in some way played into what I think of as a really universal longing for transcendence. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way that doppelganger impulse is a little bit the same thing. The idea of a coin, the sort of idealized, almost holy version of oneself, the, the self that we can never quite be, but we feel that somehow we should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, it, it's, it's just somehow evocative. It seems to come up again and again. You know, I don't always choose exactly you know, what I'm going to do. I mean, that's probably becoming clear. I mean, I didn't really know what The Keep was about until I was writing it. Um, so maybe it's a moment to just say that you know, I write very blindly my first drafts. I really have, I mean, when I wrote the chapter that you heard now, I had no idea why that thief was stealing until I was writing the words on the paper. That's kind of what writing is for me. It's, it's the time when the, the possibilities are revealed. And it's better if I don't know what's coming because I feel like what I can think about consciously are just the obvious things and I'm not really interested in those. So I'm looking to be surprised and I can't seem to do that with my conscious brain. Um, and so, you know, I, I too notice that there are many doppelgangers. I, I often write about twins. There, there's a set of twins in almost every book. Um, and, you know, I don't know exactly why. I mean, fundamentally, I don't know. I know I have some ideas about why this, these things interest me intellectually. But in some deep, symbolic dream way, I, I, I'm, I don't know. Well, you know, that makes me think in all my cyber stalking of you. <laughs> Um, I, I did find out that you, you didn't always think you were going to be a writer, but one thing I didn't read about, which I, I was curious about and I have my suspicions, were you somebody who was always an achiever in terms of academics? That's a good question. I think I, yes, in the sense that I'm, you know, I... I'm someone who wants to kind of please authority generally, again, very different from the people I write about. So yes, I think I was for a while, but then in high school, I I really had a difficult time, multiple divorces, um, just sort of general chaos. So I think at that point, I kind of lost my way as a student, but generally, yes, I think I'm, I'm someone who always wanted to do well and I've always done well in a kind of mentor situation and in a way that begins with a teacher, 
Um, and in fact, one teacher that I had when I was a freshman in high school, I, as, I, as you said, I didn't really want to be a writer. At first, I wanted to be a doctor very, very badly, um, and then later an archaeologist. But I did have a teacher who really loved my writing, and I, I vividly remember him kind of singling that out and, and the, the pleasure of being recognized for that. So I guess, in a way, he was my first writing teacher. I sort of wrote to please him, and, and it was incredible to me that, that he you know, thought I was any good. And actually, years later, I wrote to him and told him how important that had been. So I, I was glad I was able to do that. Oh, that's great. Um, and did you, do you find at all, um, do you find it a struggle to turn off kind of the analytical part of you that, that is clearly there, you know, the, the part of you that knows so much um, when you're trying to find those mysteries and the surprises in your work? Yes. I mean, it can be really hard. And, and for me, that analytical part is incredibly useful when applied at certain moments, like after I have the material I'm going to work with, and utterly destructive. I mean, it's like pouring acid on what I'm doing to start to be th- thinking this way about something that is just emerging. So I have, in a way, my whole writing technique is about forcing myself to... to I think that the essence of my technique is to stay one step ahead of the analysis. So I, first of all, I only write fiction by hand. My handwriting is completely illegible. So there's an immediate problem, which is I can't really read it, um, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> because if I try to write fiction on a computer, as I do nonfiction, I look at it and think, oh, my God, that's terrible. I've got to fix it. And suddenly I'm going backward instead of forward. So... I write by hand. I have terrible writing. I write pretty quickly. And in fact, lately, um, I've been demanding of myself that I only give myself an hour. So I'm, I'm demanding five to seven pages, and I'm allowing an hour. So I've got to write fast. And it's all about just trying to stay one step ahead of that kind of, um, in a way, sort of cruel a- analysis um, cruel and actually dull, because there's no point to analysis if there's nothing to analyze. <laughs> and right now, I just need to get something so that I know what I'm dealing with. And then you invite the analyst back in once you have something. Yes. I mean, once I have a draft, which in the case of Goon Squad happened many times since I wrote it in small chunks, but generally, I will write literally the whole first draft of a novel. Then I have to type it, which is just unbelievable. I mean... I so wish someone could read my writing at that time. Um, and then I read it, and that can be truly devastating. I mean, with, with, you know, it's, of course, terrible. I mean, how could it be good, writing it like that? I, I don't even remember what happened earlier in the book sometimes. I change characters' names. I mean, they, the people literally aren't the same people sometimes as they started out being. So it's a terrible mess. And sometimes, in the best cases, I will feel amidst that mess exciting stuff that I really want to try to work with. And, um, and in the worst cases, which actually was what happened with the keep, it is so bad that I basically have a panic attack and you know, I, you know, can't even deal with it for a little while. Um, but when I get through my stages of grieving over how much worse it is than I thought it would be... Um, I, I then make an unbelievably detailed revision outline. So for Look at Me, which is my longest book, um, I, my first revision outline was 80 pages long, single space, and 10-point type. 
<laughs> so that's where but plenty of analysis was required for that. Um, but then, but one reason I and I and I that the outline consists of both a cataloging of what's there and. Um, a very clear um, set of instructions about what needs to change point by point by point. And I literally check off the points as I go through and try to accomplish these things. The reason I do it in such a kind of, um, you know, hyper way is that once I'm back in the revising stage, which I do by hand on hard copies, I'm sort of back in the blind state or or closer to that. And so I can't hold on to all those instructions. So I really need the marching orders. And then I'll go through the entire thing. I think getting through that first outline of Look at Me took a year and a half. And longer than the first draft took to write. And then I, you know, then I read the whole thing through, made a new outline that I think was about 30 pages shorter. And it just kind of goes on that way. So it's really, for me, a dialectic between a kind of a, a totally impulsive, intuitive mindset and a very analytical task mistress mindset. Wow. Did anybody write that down? So <laughs> I, that, that's phenomenal. And, and this, all, this whole method came organically to you because you're not somebody who went off and studied writing and, and did the whole MFA thing. You were more a reader and, and you learned this on your own. Is that... You know, I think, I think, well, first of all, everyone's method is so different. And in a way, I think it, it's just trial and error, kind of realizing what leads to the best stuff. There was a period where I tried to write on a word processor, but I, I was aware that I, I seemed to just write kind of boring stuff. Um, and so, and I've tried to push against the method. I, I like, for example, I'll try to edit on a screen sometimes because I know it will be faster and it is, but the problem is the edits I make aren't good. So then when I'm looking at it on a hard copy again, I think, how did that get there? And I realize, oh, that was the one I did on the screen. So it actually takes me longer because I have to undo it all. But I, I think in a way my method was, has been fairly clear from the start and the novel I joked about writing in a vacuum um, was I, I was living in England. I had a scholarship to study there, and I was writing like a maniac this first novel that I thought would be a true work of brilliance. And I, in a way, I was writing just the way I do now. Like I wrote by hand, and I spewed out lots of pages every day. But there was one critical part of the method that I hadn't discovered yet, revision. Um, so basically, I typed it all up, didn't really read it again, which, of course, helped me to continue to believe that it was fantastic. And it looked, of course, a manuscript always looks great. You know, it's full of promise, all crisp in its little pile, or actually big pile in the case of this one. Um, and so, uh, you know, so, and then I had a brood awakening, um, which was that I would send this book to people and they would become difficult to reach. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was a, that was terrible, but, but what, the problem was that I had not figured out the other half of it. I knew that this was the way I was going to generate material but I didn't realize that the material would really stink and need to be groomed over the course of years. So I guess trial and error is really how, how it's come about. Um, and you, you did find a literary community. You found um, people that you trusted to be your readers. How did you, how did you do that? Well, it, you know, 
I mean, one reason that I love your mission here is that in a way it resembles very much kind of what I did on my own when I got to New York. I arrived there for no reason in the world except that I was dying to live in New York. And of course, I thought I had this amazing novel that would catapult me into immediate stardom and that would be really fun. Um, it, didn't, <laughs> it didn't really work that way. So I found myself um, living on a foam couch facing an air shaft and working as a temp um, and having very little time to write, and it was it was very it was not an easy beginning. Um, wait, now I'm forgot, I'm sorry, I've forgotten what um, how you found your community. Oh there. yes, so what I did was in a way I did what you are making it easier for people to do here, which is I sought out writers who were teaching out of their living rooms, of which there are always a lot in New York because it's so hard to get teaching jobs, and I just knew I needed help. So I started working with a guy named Philip Schultz, who actually now has a place called The Writer's Studio in New York, which is a, a bit like this, actually. Um, and, and, you know, so I, in a way, there I was in a workshop within a couple of months of moving to New York. I don't, it, it, that, wasn't, that, that didn't exactly become my community, but it was the beginning of trying to find an education and to figure out what had gone wrong, really, with my writing. Because in college, I had been a decent writer at a college level. And then somehow, things had gone very much off the rails with this book. And, um, and indeed, I continued to write pretty badly at the beginning. Like, I would bring in stuff to Phil's class. And the way his class worked was that everyone who brought work was allowed to read it. But of course, the way they kept it from going on for many hours was that he would stop us when he felt we had heard enough. <laughs> and that point was arriving very quickly with my pieces. Um, so, you know, it, was, it, it continued to be, I was really baffled um, and couldn't figure out how to do it anymore at the beginning. But then, you know, at a certain point, I, I had a kind of breakthrough and, and found a story that I was actually very nervous to read to the, the class, whereas I'd kind of come in there still thinking, well, this, is, this stuff is great, they're going to love it, and, you know, never, they never did. And with this, this piece, I was actually really frightened and kept pausing, thinking he was going to make me stop, and he actually let me read the whole thing. And I think that was a real turning point, just being able to read the entire story. Um, <laughs> And to, feel that, and to feel that it had some kind of emotional power, which was what was completely missing from that long effort that I wrote in England. So little by little, I began to meet other people who were trying to write. And, you know, and yes, over the years, it, I did develop a community. Um, and I have a writing group now that I'm extremely reliant on. I mean, I, I brought in most parts of Goon Squad at least once. Sometimes I bring in things very early, and all I'm really wondering is just, is it alive? Because that's such a big question. <laughs> in a way, it's, it's the only question. Um, so I, I, for me, you know, the vacuum does not work. I really need and want to know if what I'm trying to do is landing. Mm, that's great. And is everybody in your writer's group publishing the way you are, or does that not matter? It doesn't matter, um, and, and no, but they're doing different things. There's a playwright, a poet, um, more of an essayist. So they're all doing well in, in their own ways, and there's, and there's a nice feeling of being a, a team. I think we all take pride in each other's accomplishments, and they should certainly take pride in Goon Squad, which I feel they practically co-wrote. <laughs> That's great. Um, and one, I, I know I have to turn it over to the audience, but... Um, one question I have to ask just selfishly, how have you managed the transition from 
writing um, just as yourself and writing as a mother of two children? That was hard. Um, I mean, I, I really prioritized writing over having children for quite a while to the point of waiting to actually have a child until I finished Look at Me, which I think made my husband a bit nervous um, as it took a really long time. Um, and, and at first, you know, I, I, I had been so obsessed with my work and it was one of the things that, was, that my husband and I had in common. He directs plays and he also was and kind of is a workaholic. So that was something that had really held us together because we understood that in each other and we didn't resent it. And having children was at the at the beginning very hard for me because I had this feeling when I was with my son, who was just a baby, that I should be writing. And when I was writing, I should be with him. It sort of felt like no matter where I was, I was not in the right place. And I felt um, suddenly there was this new preoccupation, I mean, to put it mildly, that seemed to really crowd out the level of preoccupation that I had had before. And I thought, you know, I may, I'm, maybe I'm just not good for much anymore. Um, but over time, I feel like it's actually become much easier. And, and in fact, I think it's really a great job to have as a mother because it's very flexible. I mean, the friends I have who work in the corporate world have, have very little flexibility, but I'm able to really be there when I need to be there, which is great. And what I came to feel over time was almost the opposite of the feeling of always being in the wrong place. I felt like, the, you know, I can, I can, this can all be part of one life. And I find myself having ideas when I'm with my kids. They have given me tons of ideas. And I, I mean, really, I... I feel that a, a lot of the work that I'm planning, and definitely Black Box, the story you mentioned, has arisen from some of their interests and obsessions. Just as one example, um, there's a book called The Three Pigs. I think it's David Wiesner, the, where the pigs go in and out of different storybooks. And so they, they, they escape the wolf by jumping out of the book that they're in just at the point when he would eat them. And so they, and they end up going into other storybooks, and when they enter those other stories where they don't belong, they are drawn in the style of the storybook they're entering. And, so, and I, I was just captivated by that, and I thought, there's got to be a way to do that in fiction. So, for example, when the, when the pigs enter a nursery rhyme, they're drawn in a really simplistic, cartoonish way, whereas, but in the original three pigs that they jumped out of, they were drawn very naturalistically, and I thought... It would be really cool to take a character that I had written very naturalistically and try to move him or her into a, a cartoonish version or a sort of more st strongly stylized version, let's say. And that kind of led me, it was one of the things that, that, that led to this piece, Black Box, in which, which Andrea mentioned, in which Lulu, who's a character from Goon Squad, becomes a, a futuristic spy with all kinds of body enhancements. And it's, you know, it, it would never have worked as part of Goon Squad. I mean, she in some way has kind of transformed in terms of her, in term, stylistically. But I, I swear, I kind of got the idea from a book I read to my kids. So I think, I think they can take some credit for having given me an idea that was fun to explore. And, and I see that happening more. Yeah, I, I actually see that in your work a lot as it's, uh, you know, over time. And that made me wonder, is it even possible to kind of do the straight traditional narrative anymore given the subjectivities that we've been talking about and deceptions and time and uh, technology, 
do you feel you could even write a straight story? Um, and I was thinking of the Emerald City stories. You know, the straight realism. Is that even possible anymore? Well, <laughs> we'll find out because my new book is totally conventional. <laughs> I mean, awesome. maybe it was just, I, I've, maybe I just had to do something that was really different from what I had been doing. Or maybe it's not as conventional as it seems like it will be. But it is certainly, a, a, it is pulling back from the kind of structural radicalism, if you will, of, of Goon Squad or, or um, Black Box, which was written for Twitter. Or maybe I just couldn't find anywhere else to go in those directions, but this is steeped in research and, as far as I can tell, rather straightforward. Very good. Good. Well, this is um, a nice time to pivot, I think, according to my Mike's watch. Um, to you guys in the audience, um, I guess if you have a question, you'll just shout it at us, and I'll restate it if I can, or, or Jenny This is a great question. Do I read as I write? And, and if so, how do I deal with the, the potential for what I'm reading kind of influencing what I'm writing? I do always read as I'm writing. Um, to some degree, my reading is, uh, is often a little bit determined by what I'm working on in that I always think reading is a little bit like eating. It's, you have an appetite for certain things, and those are really the things ideally you should be reading. So, for example, when I worked on The Keep, which is gothic, I read only Gothic work for about two years, ranging from the very early, you know, 18th century Gothic novels to Stephen King and Joyce Carol Oates. And that stuff felt like it was really directly feeding what I was doing. Sometimes it, it's not such a harmonious relationship, as you point out. Um, the one, one of the many problems that that long-ago novel I wrote had um, were the sections I wrote while reading Proust, which... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it's it was hard, it's hard to say in a book that basically was so, really so bad that one part was worse. But the Proust parts, <laughs> the Proust parts were unendurable because there were these three-page metaphors and unbelievably long sentences. I mean, but again, the problem there was not that I was reading Proust. The problem was the one I already mentioned. I wasn't. I didn't edit the work. So yes, I find that in, when I'm reading, what I'm reading will leave a kind of surface mark on what I'm doing. But the, the, in the editing process, stylistic ticks that are coming from elsewhere, things that don't quite fit, they just get flushed away. So I wouldn't worry about that. It's like, you know, it's like leaning against, you know, sitting in a wicker chair and having a little imprint of wicker on your skin for a little while. It goes away. And, and it's, it's not going to hang out in the work if it doesn't belong there. You just have to go through the work enough times to make sure you actually, you know, eradicate it. And, um, and that was the part I wasn't doing. But again, in terms of um, reading as a sort of appetite Often the things you, are, you most want to read, or at least that I most want to read when I'm writing, tend to be things that actually will work for me in that way. But sometimes we don't always have control over what we're reading, and that's sometimes where the, the more uh, jangly relationship can happen. Have you ever not had control of what you were reading? 
Yeah, I feel like I almost never do. I've got 10 million friends publishing yeah. books right. and, you know. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So the question is, um, it, debating whether Goon Squad is a collection of stories or a novel and kind of how did I think about it as I was working on it and what do I think now? You know, I, as I said before, I started it just, I literally thought I was writing one short story. Um, and then that one kind of led to another one because there was that quick mention of um, Benny Salazar putting the gold flakes in his coffee and the pesticide in his armpits. And after I wrote it, I thought gosh, who's he? I think I got to find out a little more about him. And of course, I was still procrastinating. And then in the course of writing about Benny, I got kind of ex interested in his wife, um, the doubles player. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do one more. And then at that point, I thought, oh, this is really getting out of hand. Okay, this is, we're definitely stopping after three. But in fact, I, in the course of writing the third, I realized I didn't want to stop and it really was a book. So I didn't even ask the question of what it was until I was already, you know, had some number of pages. And I could see that it was kind of a slippery one to pigeonhole, and I just decided, who cares? It's a book. Um, and, and I figured, you know, it won't sell because it, ne it never goes well when you can't, you know, describe something in a really neat way. But I figured, well, I'm just, I'm just doing it for fun, so I won't worry about it. In fact, though... While I was working on it, about halfway through, I discovered that I was actually working very clearly in a particular genre. It just wasn't either of those two. And that happened when I divided the book into two parts and was calling them part one and part two. And then I thought, there's all this stuff about time and what happened between A and B. Why don't I just call it part A and part B? And all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, it's a concept album. <laughs> And, you know, if you think about it, it absolutely matches the definition of a concept album. A concept album is a big story told in small pieces that sound really different from each other. That's what it is. So, actually, in a way, it's a lot less adventurous than I thought when you think about it. Um, it's, it's not really genre-bending. It's just in a musical genre. Did you know that some of the stories that were older... Like Goodbye My Love, which we were just talking earlier. Um, we had read it like in 2003 or something um, in my short story class when it was in Zoetrope, and it wasn't Sasha. Did, did you make the realization that it was the same character um, before you started found objects or after? So this is, I almost never talk about this part because few have done their homework so carefully. Um, <laughs> Only because it's, it's confusing. Um, so, so, uh, so, as Andrea said, four pieces in Goon Squad I wrote in the 90s. And the characters had often different names, although the, actually the pieces themselves were largely unchanged. The strange thing and the very organic thing about writing Goon Squad was that once I had had that point of, the, of as I think of it, the first three stories um, that I just talked about, I then thought, okay, so this is, this is a book... Um, that's happening in parts, and they're related. And, the, and almost immediately, I feel like those, these four freestanding stories that had all been published 
began shooting tentacles out and attaching to this new material. And it was, and the first overlap was the, um, there was a piece I'd written called 40 Minute Lunch about a guy who's trying to interview a celebrity and he goes a little haywire. And he immediately resurfaced as the, the brother of Benny's wife. And it, and it was, it was so strange. I thought, okay, sure. Yeah, I like the idea of involving that. And then I thought, well, I've got these other three. I wonder if they can connect. The, the connections felt effortless. It felt as if it was exactly as if um, there were little islands many miles apart, but I just hadn't seen that they were all connected by one landmass underneath. And for some reason, a lot of these revelations would happen in the shower. So I would stand there wasting a lot of water, and, and just my brain would sort of squeak with the effort of trying to find the ways that these things were going to connect. But it... and. But somehow it, it felt very natural in the end. I just, I had to find it. And once I could find it, it fell into place. Yeah. Well, you were the conduit. It was you who wrote all those. Okay. So the question was about Moose, um, a character from Look at Me who is obsessed with the way that the invention of clear glass um, sort of affected the course of human history. He's a kind of manic academic, let's say. Um, and it's interesting. He is, my, the, he is definitely my favorite character that I've ever written. I really, I, I'm so fond of Moose. Um, he, unlike almost every character in my books, actually has a kind of tenuous relationship to a real person whom I really love, um, a kind of mentally, slightly mentally unstable person. So maybe, maybe that's part of why I, I'm so fond of him. It's, it, it's also one reason that he, I had a lot of trouble with him, and I generally do very badly when what I'm working on overlaps with real life, because I, I truly do make it up. When it comes to the people, times and places I rely on very heavily, but the people, the minute they start to remind me of myself, which is the worst case, or people I know, a kind of deadness comes over me. I, I, I don't know. I feel like my, my abilities just kind of go to sleep. So with Moose, I made an exception, um, but he was difficult to rein in. I think my biggest challenge with him was that I found him so lovable and sweet and fascinating that his long lectures about the history of Rockford, Illinois were perhaps overrepresented um, <laughs> in, earlier <dra> in earlier drafts of Look at Me um, because others were less charmed. And, um, and you know, <laughs> that happens sometimes when you, when you love a character. As Philip Schultz, the, the man I mentioned earlier who I studied with, um, I think quoting Leonard, Leonard Michaels, would say, I think you love your character more than God does. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, so, and with Moose, I often really have, I, I, I think about him almost as if I want to write about him again, but I'm not sure how I would do it. I think I just miss him. Um, he really meant a lot to me. Does Scotty overlap with Moose at all? I mean, both of them see a certain kind of truth that isn't conventionally accepted. Um, and, and Moose, uh, one of the things I wrote down that he had said, um, 
we are what we see. You know, this goes with the whole mirror uh, fascination or window fascination. Um, Scotty seemed to also be a lost soul who, in his case, he was so talented musically, but he didn't fit in with the way music was supposed to work, the business part of it, just like Moose didn't fit in with academia. I mean, I guess setting a bomb in his classroom (laughs) killed the academic route for him. Um, But they reminded me of each other. Is there... Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm always, I mean, we talked earlier about sort of those little habits of mind that I'm always looking for in characters. So the shadow self was one idea like that, when Charlotte thinks she can see another side of people that, they're, that they might even be hiding from themselves. I don't think that way. I don't personally look for shadow selves, but when I, that's the, an example of the kind of surprise that will happen when I'm writing that I'm sort of looking for, or alto, the, the, quote, the thing you read earlier that um, you know, the protagonist of The Keep thinks about in, in his way of approaching reality. I'm always looking for people's systems. I, I, I really think we all have our own. Um, and so I guess in a way it's no surprise that I end up sometimes writing about people whose systems are, are so extreme or so maybe overdeveloped that make it hard for them to fully mesh with, with mainstream life. I'm just, they're just interesting to me. Especially because their minds are often very like ours, but just a bit more extreme in certain ways. So um, it, it, never, it, it never feels like I'm writing about someone who is incomprehensible, but more uh, whose you know, slightly exaggerated perceptions lead to a difficult and a different and often kind of hard life. Yeah. Right. Um, I saw some. Oh, yeah. You, I can't see out there, so you can... Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, first of all, if if I don't get criticism now, that's because I'm not asking for it, and I will be the loser because my work will stink. So I really feel like you know, you personally, I have you. I, I mean, everyone knows the feeling of being given a manuscript, and you, you're sort of told what the person wants. You know whether they want to hear a frank response or or whether they just want to hear it's great, and both things are fine. Um, but I, I've I've worked hard to look for that criticism in part because I know what it's like not to get it and that's when you write the book that you can't reach the people who have read it. Um, So I don't want to be in that position again. But as you say, it can be so hard to hear criticism. Um, and And in our writing group... You know, I, I, I hear it a lot. I mean, I wouldn't, it wouldn't work for me if I couldn't get an honest answer from them, even though they are on my side, and in a way because they are on my side. I'm, you know, if it's not alive, they're going to tell me so. They might say it nicely. And I, I always hate hearing it. 
that never changes. I mean, and in a way, I, I just accept that there will be certain stages I'll go through after hearing criticism. The first one is, you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to have a relationship anymore. Um, <laughs> I'll miss you. Um, but you've just gone too far with this. Um, you know, I absolutely have those thoughts. That's just part of the picture. Or, you know, and then, and so that's one thought. And then another one is, I'm finished. It's over. You know, this is it. The, all those phrases, li- literally verbatim, you know, it's whatever I had, it's gone. I mean, I've thought that 10 million times, and I'm sure I will another 10 million. So all of that has to happen. And then what I find is that underneath all of those layers, and, and I actually often get to it rather quickly, is an immediate a sense of like how I can solve whatever the problem is that they were talking about. So I sort of go from rejection, rage, despair to um, problem solving, which brings a certain kind of excitement and and basically a supposition that I'm going to go back to work on this thing and make it better. And so sometimes that, that journey can take a few days. In the case of that book that everyone hated, it took a year. I couldn't even look at the thing. I was, I was afraid of it. Um, and when I read it, it was very painful. It was painful to think that, I had, that all these people had read this thing that I thought was so terrible. Um, but, and we were actually talking about this in the car, you know, one, if, if, you, if you are feeling about your work that... that this is a problem or that is a problem. If you look at the other side of that, what you were also saying is, here's a possible solution and there is a possible solution. Identifying a problem is suggesting a solution. So I find that ideally the, 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 um, the journey from you know, disillusionment and misery to problem solving excitement can actually be pretty short sometimes. Um, but the only... You know, I, I, I guess the bottom line is I just don't think criticism can really hurt you. I mean, if, if it's, I mean, often in, in the writing group, people will totally disagree. Some people don't like this. Some people like it. Some people don't like the other thing. Obviously, they're not all right because that doesn't make sense. They're contradicting each other. So there's a kind of deep response in all of us that I think helps us do a kind of triage to know what we should be listening to and what we shouldn't. And, and, to greedily use what, what stuff we can to help us make the work better. Okay, someone here was, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I think, well, I, I think they're a blessing if you get them. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not so fun when you don't. Um, I mean, you know, most of what gets someone a literary award, and I say this as someone who has also been a judge, I was a National Book Awards judge in 2009, it is luck. You know, it's obviously having a good book helps, um, although it's not, you know, the books that win awards are not always great. Um, it is luck. It is, it is having the luck to please the right small number of people that year. That's literally why you get them. That's what the process is. It feels to, from the outside like the person has been anointed by God, but that's not how it happened. <laughs> it happened because people yelled at each other and screamed. Um, probably each of them lost their top choice, 
and this is their compromise. So I'll take it. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I am so grateful for my good luck, um, but I, I also know not to take credit for it. You know, all you can do with luck is just be appreciative that you got it. it. Looking at the bigger picture of literary awards, what they're really about is bringing excitement and attention to their, their industry. That's what all awards are about. And so in that way, I support them because I want the publishing industry to have, you know, attention and money and, and you know, and readers and customers. And so I, I sort of believe in that process, phony though it is to some slight degree, as a way of generating excitement about an industry that, that is my industry and a practice, reading and writing, which I believe in so profoundly and which I think is somewhat imperiled um, at present. So I, I think they're basically a good thing, but, but they, they really shouldn't be taken too seriously and certainly not by the people who have been lucky enough to, to cash in. What led me to the PowerPoint chapter? Um, well, a few things. One is I had I realized as I was as this book was coming together with these older pieces and the newer ones that one of the basic ground rules of it was that each chapter was going to ha be different technically from all of the others. So whereas with most books, certainly you know conventional novels or even linked story collections usually have a kind of similar technical approach chapter by chapter that, that indicate to the reader this is all one book. Um, I thought, in this book, I don't want that. I want them all to feel like they're parts of different books and yet still link together and, and have a kind of fusion that makes it into one thing. That proved to be difficult over time because how many technical approaches are there? I mean, first person, third person, you know, multiple points of view, got second person in there. Um, I, was, I was looking hard for ways to write that were different from the ways I had already written. I tried some things that did not work. Um, I had a chapter in the form of a play. That would have been a great solution. It unfortunately did not. It was a terrible chapter. Um, <laughs> I tried epic poetry. That was, I didn't even get very far with that. Um, but I still think if I could have had epic poetry and PowerPoint in one book, oh my God. Um, I'm sorry that didn't, that, that wasn't possible. But anyway, so I had my eye on PowerPoint fairly early because I just knew that it, it was becoming a very gen generic form. Um, it, during the Obama campaign, when his um, suddenly he he leapt ahead and never actually slipped back again, and there was all this analysis about what had changed within his campaign, and repeatedly a particular PowerPoint was was mentioned as having been a, a turning point in the the way the campaign saw itself, and I kept thinking, I can't believe they're calling it a PowerPoint, like not a memo or a paper, but no, it was a PowerPoint. So I was very curious about it. Um, I had never used PowerPoint, and actually I did not entirely know what it was, I'm <laughs> reluctant to say, <laughs> at that point. Um, so in order to find out, I, I emailed some friends I had in the corporate world and said, I'm dying to know more about what you do. Can you send me your PowerPoint? Send me a PowerPoint. And um, they, of course, did. And then I discovered that I actually didn't even own PowerPoint. I could not open their PowerPoints. <laughs> So I, 
I did a little more research and found that it was expensive um, and that I didn't have enough memory on my laptop to hold it. So at that point, I thought, okay, we're not going to actually buy PowerPoint. Um, I thought, I write by hand anyway, so I'm just going to do it by hand. So I literally drew some rectangles on a, on a legal pad, and, you know, and they remained empty, suffice it to say. It didn't, I couldn't really do PowerPoint without owning PowerPoint. Um, so eventually I did buy PowerPoint and the memory, etc. And at that point, I found that I still couldn't write anything in PowerPoint because I couldn't figure out who would tell a story in PowerPoint or how to actually use it in fiction. Um, and this is actually a perfect example of why my conscious mind is so unhelpful um, in, in, in fiction. Because I thought, oh, well, I guess a, a really corporate person would tell their story in PowerPoint. That's, it's, you know, that's a sort of obvious solution um, that, that, in fact, was, was not very helpful because all it felt like was a very corporate enterprise, which, which didn't really feel like the mood one wants when reading fiction. So I actually sold the book without the PowerPoint. I kind of viewed it as a failure. Um, and then after I sold it, I suddenly had a kind of brainwave and realized that another problem in the book, which is that I hadn't found a way to visit Sasha, my wallet thief, in her future life, could be solved if I had one of her children narrate the PowerPoint. And it, that really was a kind of light bulb moment because I realized that having a kid tell, narrate the PowerPoint would undercut this corporate problem I was having and it would give me a way to reveal Sasha's life. And um, so I had to write it really quickly because the publisher was expecting light revisions from me um, and I had about two months... Oh my God, what a summer. Um, you know, my husband and the kids were frolicking in the sea and I was, you know, staring goggle-eyed at a PowerPoint. And I don't even use, use a computer to write. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I kind of pushed myself through that because I, I actually, um, I think it really, it, it ended up being an important part of the book. I think it would have been less strong without it. Um, and, and the key for me of being able to use odd structural things like this. And maybe this is really where I fell down in the play chapter and maybe even the epic poetry chapter, although I'm not sure I could have actually written the poetry. But the, the issue is always what story can be, cannot be told any other way. If it's a story that could be written conventionally, forget trying to smush it into a, an unusual structure. It just won't work. But that PowerPoint chapter could never have been written conventionally. It's too sweet. I think it would. I think it's actually sort of. Um, I think it would have come across as kind of maudlin, and very little actually happens, um, which again works with PowerPoint because it's actually very hard to represent action in PowerPoint. Um, so it's a very static form. It's it's single moments. So it, it it you know form and function by some miracle kind of coalesced in that chapter. Oh, you guys! I hate to say this. But um, my idea is that if you go out to the lobby and get your book signed during the kind of small talk that you do while, while she's signing your book, you can ask additional questions. You totally can. Questions. Um, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you all. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, 
Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.